Hello again and welcome to I've Got a Beatles podcast and today it's Dave coming at you with another interview and this time we're going to be interviewing an old favorite guest, one of our uh, all-time favorites, Jude Sutherland Kessler, and she's brought with her today a new guest and that is Scott R. McKinley and we'll tell you a little bit about each of them but we're very excited to have you both here. Uh, for lots of things to talk about and for a really interesting reason i happen to have it in my hand here uh, at least the book part of it uh, but we're going to talk about a really cool new uh, way to present some of jude's work so uh, jude sutherland kessler is the author of five books about john lennon most recently shades of life part one which we'll talk about in a little bit She's also a noted John Lennon expert who presents all around the world and on a number of podcasts about his life, music, and everything else Lennon. So hi, Jude. Great to have you back. Hi, Dave. Thank you so much. I feel exactly the same way. I have told Scott over and over, I said, this is one of my very, very favorite people and my favorite podcasts. In fact, I miss getting to sit down and have dinner with you at the Chicago Fest. So in new york or are you going to the... i'll i'll i want to i've never been to a new york fest so Ooh. i yeah it's a and scott i know you're from out that way you live yeah. out there so uh i'll i'll be interested to well, let's talk some more about uh well save uh, us an evening to have dinner and yes. scott too we we definitely want a chance to sit down and visit with you that would be wonderful so yeah look look forward to that and we also uh, welcome Scott McKinley, who has done narrating and voice acting work for various podcasts, as well as several true crime and John Lennon audiobooks, including Lennon, the Mobster, and the Lawyer, the Untold Story. And of course, the subject of today's podcast, She Loves You, Volume 3 in the John Lennon series. So welcome, Scott. Thank you very much. I appreciate being here. Thank you for having me. Very good. So we were just talking before we got started uh, how the, the Fest for Beatle fans just happened, as we alluded to, in Chicago. And so both of you were there. So I wanted to find out your, what, what, how was it? How did you enjoy it? Did you have any particularly fun or enlightening experiences that you wanted to share? Yeah, we loved it. And we were so excited to be able to do the Saturday morning. We generally had been on Sunday morning, which is a little bit smaller crowd, but this year we got to do the Saturday morning early bird presentation. That's a captive audience because there's nothing else going on at 11 a.m. <laughs> so we got everybody and it was great fun to be able to um, share Scott's magnificent narration and voices and bringing the Beatles to life as they landed at JFK on the 7th of February, 1964. It was so exciting. And then we got to interact. You know, this is a weird thing, Dave, but I thought when I started writing the John Lennon series 36 years ago that the people who were going to buy the book were those girls on the tarmac. Mm -hmm. I thought that they would want to go back to those days and relive it and everything. So I I sell to 93% men. Really? Uh, yeah, almost wow. no women. And in on the rare occasion that a female will purchase the book and I write to her and say, thank you so much. I'm so excited to have a female reader. She will respond, oh, this is a gift for my husband. <laughs> so really? um, yeah, no, almost no women. Weird. So this weekend, 
strangely enough, we talked to mainly women at the booth. So maybe this new way of exploring the story of the Beatles is going to open a new appeal to a different set of readers. I don't know why I can't explain it, but um, it doesn't, unless, and I, you know, this is a possibility that um, men will carve out more time to sit and read a physical book and maybe women don't carve out that time. I don't know, but this, the audiobook concept has definitely opened a new, a new readership. That was exciting. Oh, well, that's fascinating. I, I never would have thought that it was majority male readers yeah. or, or yeah, readers in, the, in this case, especially given in the last I don't know, decade or so, there's been a lot more emphasis on telling women's stories of the fans of, you know, women fans and writers and, and all of that. So uh, yeah. very interesting. So, uh, well, Scott, what did you, what was your impression? Um, I had a great time at the, the fest um, and boy, to be on stage uh, along with Jude after the presentation. I mean, I was proud of the presentation itself since uh, I narrated it and I thought it worked rather well. But being on stage in front of the audience was, wow, something else. I, I did it at New York as well, but it just seemed like a much, as Jude said, livelier crowd on a Saturday rather than a Sunday. And it yeah. was really phenomenal. I had a great time. Well, that's great. I mean, as a native Chicagoan, I have to say it's certainly the better city and the better <laughs> fest, but... Uh... We, we talked uh, we'll, we'll we'll i'll try to make the new york fest and uh, that's where it started so uh, yes it'll be it, it is uh perhaps uh a slightly better city uh oh we were not gonna go there but, <laughs> no 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 <laughs> <laughs> we'll fight it out over drinks <laughs> so, and pizza and new pizza. york style pizza chicago yes. style pizza yes made the best pizza win uh, there we go well, which there. would be new york style which but, is chicago uh, famous course, raised so. pizza yeah. i believe <laughs> Yeah. As Sid Bernstein would have uh, oh. insisted. All right, I'm going to let that go. <laughs> I'm going to throw in a little bit of bananas, Foster, from Nolans, and you guys will forget all about pizza. Ooh, ooh. This, this is sounding very fun. I just finished dinner, but I, I, I could go for some more. Well, <laughs> to... Uh, to get the discussion started about the current project, uh, for yeah. those who don't know Jude's work, uh, it can be described, or I mean, people have described it as historical fiction, but what makes her books, books different is that there are extensive sections, I mean, it's, these are thick books, uh, of historical details and myth-busting, which I particularly like, uh, supported by lots of footnotes and sources. So uh, Jude, tell us a little bit about your approach to writing the life of John Lennon in this way. I know you, you answered it back in our, our podcast we did a long time ago, but it's been a while. So uh, for a new new group of people who may not know your work, tell us a little sure. bit about your approach. Sure. It really is a narrative history because I try not to use anything that is fictional. Um, now, that being said, I don't know if John Lennon cleared his throat or if he walked to the window or <laughs> some of that, you know, you don't know. But the words that they say, the food that they eat, the clothes that they wear, the things that they do are all documented. It's I had 4,400 footnotes in the last book. So, and it gets into the weeds. I mean, it's things like when they were in Montreal, the man that delivered their food said that he delivered fried chicken and um, fr we call them French fries and chips. And 
the guy that promoter said, oh no, that's not true. It was hamburgers and French fries. And they got into a big controversy over it. So I documented it. That's how into the weeds we go. Um, you know, and I have a, a wonderful reader, uh, Rabbi Rallis Wiesenthal, who spends an hour every single day of his life finding me photos. Like right now, he's finding me photos from 1965 and 66. So I can have them wearing in EMI when they're making Norwegian wood exactly what they had on. I have tapes that when EMI let the tapes run, I have the tapes from the studio tapes so that I can transcribe and use exactly what they said. So, you know, it is very work intensive. And it is at the end of every chapter, I say things like, what details could I not drop into this chapter and, and make it into a narrative? You read it like it's a story or a narrative. And then I go into all the details I couldn't use. Or I say, was Brian really in studio this evening? And I give you what Hunter Davey says, what Bruce Pfizer says, what Mark Lewison says. And we go through and see, try to find the kernel of the truth. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes if a story has been told over and over and over, it begins to stretch. Scott and I found this when we're doing the audio book and you're um, telling the story of Paul's 21st birthday. Well, when that story is first told, Bob Wooler would not tell me what he said, but he gave me a good <laughs> idea of what he said. He said something along the lines of how is the Spanish honeymoon? And he had been teasing and picking at John, getting at him uh, for over a month since Brian and John returned from the Costa del Bravo and the Costa del Sol. And John had finally had it by Paul's 21st birthday. And so when he did that, we know John hit him. I mean, that's a given. John definitely hit him. But the story begins to expand. Then he breaks his collarbone. Then by the 1990s, by the time you get to Goldman, uh, he picks up a shovel and hits him. The oh, my story, gosh. <laughs> it just, you know, it explodes. Um, it, it goes the bomb. So we have to go back and look at who was there, who was the primary source, who said what, who remembered what. And that's part of the John Lennon series is getting to the kernel of the truth of what really happened. So it's a complex thing. You read it like a story, but it's highly factual. So absolutely. And it's funny you mentioned that I was listening to some of the some of you reading uh, some of the notes today about that very incident. And so it was very just amusing to hear, but so well documented. Oh, Bob Spitz says this or that were so-and-so Hunter Davies said that, like you just said, and uh, it makes it really, uh, like I say, myth-busting. You're, you're dispelling a lot of the old myths and some of the tired points that we hear and, and getting to the truth of what was said. The historiography, which is what I got my, one of my undergraduate degrees in, tells you that people change history for various reasons. Most, oh, yeah. fre most frequently they change it because they want to slam it towards them or they want to be the prime actor in the story. Um, they either know something that no one else knows or they were there and they saw something that no one else saw. But there are other reasons, you know, and this history is so malleable that we forget it's slippery. It's very slippery. So you have to really study and turn it and twist it and look at it and see who has what to gain when they tell a story. Well, this may be a little off topic, but it, it, you 
made me think of this though, that the longer someone lives, the more they get to change that trajectory of history. And I'm thinking of John and Paul, uh, thinking of uh, a lot of the controversies in recent years that Paul has now suddenly remembered things from 60 years ago in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. John's not around to tell his story. Uh, I'm just reading his account of uh, Paul's account in many years from now of writing the melody for In My Life. And you, as you know, that's been disproven. Yep. But um, I'm like, uh, I have to take this. I have to take these memories very in very small doses because <laughs> my blood pressure just can't <laughs> handle it. But, um, you know, <laughs> It, history, the longer you go and the further away you get from an incident, the more it, it changes. Yeah. And, and to that effect, I've got a question very much related to that. Now, you know, you're in your sixth book now on the subject. And have your working methods and practices changed since you started writing? And and then to the what we were just saying, is it getting more difficult to write about a period that's been so studied by authors and with many of the firsthand players gone or in advanced age? It is because I only have a limited amount of time and I'm pretty OCD. And so I don't want to stop until I have explored every single source that there is but I've been working on the notes. This is a teeny tiny portion of the notes. I've typed most of them. This is during the power outage. Um, <laughs> I, I've been working on the notes for Rubber Soul since the 14th of June, and we're almost to September. And I want to stop and start writing the chapters. But every time I do, I find, you know, I haven't, I haven't yet gotten to Jerry Hammock. I'm saving Jerry. Oh Hammock. yeah. I need to buy that one actually. Oh gosh. Too. Yeah. yeah. So good. So good. I'm saving that for the last because he'll have stuff that no one else has. Mm -hmm. I'm on, I'm going page by page through maximum volume and looking at George Martin's. Um, I can't let it go. And at some point you've got to stop taking notes and you've got to write. But the more people who write books and the more little tit, someone always has a different tidbit. John C. Wynn sees it one way. Hunter Davies in the lyrics sees it one way. You just have, it's it's a problem. You're right. Yeah, it's challenging. I mean, uh, <laughs> and Scott, do you have any thoughts on that too? Because I know you've had different experiences in, in these issues as well. Well, Jude is very much the Mark Lewison of uh, the John Lennon series. My goodness. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um so being OCD is a good thing when you're writing <laughs> facts down and you're trying to keep stories straight. We had conversations when we were um, starting the audiobook about how we would present it. So right now, um, even though it's uh, volume three of the John Lennon series, the She Loves You book, it's a standalone uh, audiobook. You can listen to it without listening to the preludes uh, or actually should say the first two volumes of her series um although uh or or the later volumes in the series as far as that goes it is standalone to make it standalone jude wrote new exclusive preludes in the book to bring the listener up to date as to what's going on when the book actually starts and the reason that jude i selected her to read the notes the chapter notes after every chapter is because they're very personalized mm. jude has a nice 
um, accent. I, I, I love your voice, too. Yes, definitely. And I love your way of just reading it. We boil down all of those footnotes and the page numbers and all of that to very listenable subchapters describing sources. And if there's mythology or a conflict of sources, Jude addresses it nice and short. And it's skippable if you don't want to listen to that in the middle of the main story. But if you're interested in figuring out, well, who said what? Um, Jude's there to offer that throughout the book. And I think that worked out very well, actually. Talking to Terry Crane, who did NIMS in the Business of Selling the Beatles, 1964, 1966. Yeah. And he said, I started out and I wanted to just listen to the story. So when it got to the notes, I skipped. Listen to the next chapter, skip. Listen to the next chapter, skip. Then it got to Paul's birthday. And I wanted to hear those notes. And after I heard those notes, I was like, dead gummit. I got to go back and now listen to all the other notes. <laughs> so we went back and started over again, then got caught up and then alternated. But that was all of that. The two preludes to summarize should have been there, volume one, mm-hmm. and two, volume two. And the notes, those were all Scott's idea. He is not the person who just read this audio book. He was the engineer for the whole thing i want us to do this i want us to do that he had the ideas and we ran and i said okay great let's go with it and he really had a great concept for how he wanted it to sound no i was going to say i did uh, produce the book as well mm-hmm. although uh jude and her husband rand also obviously contributed very much so rand uh, contributing some original music to it because mm-hmm. I like the idea of having certain segments of the book introduced by musical flourishes or um, uh, trumpet uh, advances or wh- whatever uh, the word is for a musical a stinger. That's yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, at the beginning of certain parts, just to help set it off. Uh, and as well as uh, it was Jude's idea to put in some um, music that um, a professional band had uh, played uh, that we bought the rights for to use in the book called the black ties and so we have a little bit of music in there i don't just narrate the book i perform the book it, because even though it's non-fiction you still have a lot of dialogue and how much more pleasant it is to listen to a book if you hear uh different voices um performed as the dialogue continues it keeps your attention i do mostly history i love history and historiography is one of my favorites as well so i was very fortunate to be able to get um to do beatles books uh i gotta tell you uh, i a narrator but chance to do the beatles and i love the beatles it wasn't just for this book that i learned about the beatles i was just like uh i couldn't believe my good fortune to be able to audition and to get the books uh, jay barrigan's well, book uh, as well as this one yeah well that's perfect you've already answered some of the questions I was going to ask because I was curious. So and you both can answer this one, but uh, I think it was brilliant to choose. She loves you as the, as because I thought my had a question. Well, why didn't you just start with the beginning? But this really gets people into when things were getting particularly hot and you know, ready to take off and definitely taking off literally across the yeah. ocean and uh, all of that. So it's it, like right in the, the zeitgeist there. Uh, but adding the extra uh, preludes really helped bring people up to speed as well. Uh, and it's just a, a good place to start. And so I was wondering, how did you two meet and how how did you decide to go ahead and do this audiobook if she loves you? I, I 
it was she a says it, yeah describes it, it was best. a red <laughs> lettuce moment as john lennon would say but <laughs> when um <laughs> lennon the mobster and the lawyer came out and i have to say if people if lennon fans have not read jay bergen's book you must because it's very it, good it's, it is the thing that we long for, but yep. we never get, which is new material. This is all new material. He, uh, Jay Bergen, was and the attorney. primary source, too. Yes, exactly. yeah, he was yeah. the lawyer, yeah. Exactly. He was the attorney for John in the trial against mobster Morris Levy when Levy took John's raw, unpolished tapes that were, would someday be polished into the rock and roll LP roots. and release. Yeah. Roots. Yeah. And, you know, this was a very heated trial, but what the judge wanted to know is what stance do you have, Mr. Lennon, in saying that what Mr. Levy has released is not acceptable. So John talked extensively about the way he creates an LP, how he orders an LP, why you choose one song to follow another, what his creative process is. And then he goes through all the songs on the album, what they mean to him, how they speak to him. This is all new stuff we've never heard before that sat in Jay Bergen's um, garage in a box for years and years and years. And finally he thought, well, I could make this into a book. It's an amazing book. So um, Scott sent me, a link to an audio copy of the book and he had done the audio book and I thought oh no here we go because <laughs> I am really critical of people that that like are John Lennon in a tribute band it can oh drive. me too yeah, yeah the faux the fab foe or the the faux Beatles and the, you the know, hair yeah. good some of them yeah you know, the gum look, chewing. The, yeah. uh, <laughs> John is not a cartoon character, people. You know, so I, I thought, okay, well, and then I was like, oh, wait, that's John Lennon. Yeah. That's John Lennon, and <laughs> he has it down to such a fine detail. I, he, I know he's heard me say this so many times; he's going to shoot himself. But um, <laughs> I, you know, how John always says, "Nah, no." He doesn't uh -huh. have to just say no. He says, no, nah, no, that's <laughs> not in my book, but that's how Scott did it. Mm. He does, he absolutely was John Lennon. And so I could feel my heart was just, we got something here because what I've always wanted to do, what I hope the books would do is what he finally did when this audiobook came out. It takes you back. It takes you back. To 1963, 1964. Okay, I'm going to tell y'all this is this is where people are going to go. She is a freaky nut. But <laughs> what I'm getting ready to tell you is scientifically, <laughs> this is scientifically proven. You can look it up. Bowl Street in Liverpool has had multiple occurrences. I'm going to say ten or twelve, maybe more than that, of people who disappear for a short amount of time, never longer than 24 hours, and come back saying that they have been transported back to the 1950s and the early 1960s. They they've gone lie detector tests. They've done all this. Stuff. What has happened is that there is an electrical system. It was an old transport system that's under the street. They say that has been part of it. I don't know. These people could all be lying. They could all be <laughs> making it up. I don't know. Look it up. 
I have wandered Bowl Street up and down, up and down, up and down. Like, Here I am. Take me back. Yeah. Nothing. 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 But I will tell you that who takes you back is Scott McKinley because I, I I called him and I said, can you do Paul the way you do John? He's like, yeah. Can you do George? Oh, oh yeah. George is my best. Can you do Ringo? Can you do Brian? Can yeah. you do, you know, Tony Barrow? And what about people like Ed, Sid Bernstein and Ed Sullivan and Trinity Lopez and Bobby Goldsboro? Because they're all in the book. Neil Aspinall, people like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's like, if I can study them, I need to get video. Now. He and then I'm like, oh, Cynthia, there's no way that mm. anyone that does John would. John has a deep register. Yeah. If, if if you can do John, I don't know that you can do Cynthia. He absolutely it ta- it is Bowl Street. It is mm. your way to get back. And. I just, I, the, when he said that, I'm like, we're doing an audio book. We've got to do an audio book. So, yeah. Well, Scott, your accents are fabulous. And it, listening to the audiobook makes you feel like you're in the room uh, listening to this, these conversations. So uh, tell us a little bit about your own background. So how did you get involved in reading audiobooks, And how did you learn the accents? Or how did you, you, know, did well, you listen to just lots of recordings of them speaking interviews or study I've, Scouse accents? Or how did you do all this? For, for the Beatles in particular, I'd always tried to do the voices of the Beatles since I was a kid. Um, I do some mimicry uh, mm. throughout, um, and mostly as a kid or as a young adult, I had a much higher voice too. So I'm just trying to do um, geez, uh, classic routines from like Richard Little or something. Uh, you know, it didn't really sound very good, but I was very earnest about trying it. I discovered old time radio programs, for instance, and love classic movies. And so, you know, just trying to do, um, I don't know, Henry Fonda or Gregory Peck or Jack Benny or uh, <laughs> any, any of the old folks like that. I, I did a lot of that as a kid, but I don't know how good it sounded. I was a kid and it never occurred to me that as I got older, my voice would get closer to it. I just never stopped doing the Beatles and it became something of a running gag in my non-voice work job. I worked um, as a bookstore manager for many years. Hmm. And after that, I did tech support for a very large payroll company. And uh, internally, um, sometimes I would answer the phone, knowing who was calling, um, in a different accent, just to keep in practice and to keep the other people uh, on their toes, because they had no idea what I was trying to do. And some (laughs) of it just to uh, (laughs) tease my boss a little bit. Sure. Well, who who did you find was the hardest to do in the book? Because Jude already rattled off a, not even all of the people that well, you had uh, to figure out. For the book, uh, there are yeah. a ton of voices. Uh, I added them all up, as I normally do when I'm doing an audiobook. I look to see how many dialogue pieces there are and how many different voices there will need to be. Normally, it's like um, with Jay Bergen's book, for instance. There's only about five to ten principal characters. Those are the only ones. And then for that book, it was primarily John Lennon and Jay Bergen's voice himself and uh, the judge and the, uh, well, the the prosecuting attorney. And so those were the ones I had to focus on. Everyone else could just sort of be um, done or studied as needed. Uh, but with this book, 180 different 
parts. Thank you, Jude, for making it very, very hard to do. But of those, I was able to boil down to maybe 30 or 40 primary voices, which is still an awful lot. I, I basically studied all that I could listen to. I could study just generic, uh, generic, uh, generic Liverpool accents, but if I know what the real person sounds like, yeah, why study something generic? I would sure. rather try to mimic a voice if I can. And I do have sometimes a good ear for a voice. And um, so if you listen to enough, uh, a hard day's enough, enough times, yeah. you know, um, you, you'll pick it up after a while if you're really, uh, you know, working hard at trying to pick it up, up the voice itself. One voice at a time. Yeah. But you also don't want to resort to the kind of cliches of the oh no. i don't know how's it going yeah, kind of the fake you, you know, how are you? the fake um, kind of like exaggerated Liverpool. i didn't want to be over the top yeah and that's extremely what i was hoping to avoid that was probably the main reason i asked you to listen to the jay bergen book was just to get a sense of how did i do because most of the people i would ask would be like yeah it sounds uh i don't know what do the Beatles sound like? You know, because um, uh, not everybody uh, is a giant Beatle fan. But wow. um, if 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 you would like, I, I do have a small piece from the book that I could read, sure, just to give you a sense of it. Unless yeah. you had uh, another question first. But, uh, uh, no, well, just to that effect, I still yeah. you dodged me very well when I asked who are the hardest characters to voice oh, for the uh, book. Um, yeah. Some of the women, mm. uh, for instance, uh, Maureen Starkey. The hardest time I had probably was with Neil Aspinall. Mm. I knew what he sounded like. I'd heard him on the anthology series. I found, um, I actually found an interview clip with him in 1965 when he was talking and being interviewed at one of the uh, concerts itself. But his voice was just a register that was a little bit different. And anytime I tried deliberately to just mime him, I would go off into another half Beatle voice. Yeah. And it's they all sounded too close alike. And that's mm. part of the hard part when it's a, an accent. And that's one of the dangers of just studying Scouse. Yeah. Is yeah. that they all will start to sound alike unless you find a little hook in the voice. I know. I was very embarrassed the first time I went to Liverpool because I went to check into my hotel and uh, I, I, the person checked me in and I said, Oh, you sound like the Beatles. And, he was, he was like, he's like, he looked at me. He's like, uh, yeah, I know I'm from Liverpool. I said, no, I, everyone sounds like the Beatles. Here. I have to be careful because I do tend to mimic. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, again, with my, my previous boss, uh, John at uh, the payroll company, uh, we had counterparts who lived in England and Australia oh. and New Zealand, and they would be on the phone with me. And he would just stare at me from across the room and just be like, don't, 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 <laughs> don't embarrass do me. Don't, don't do their voices. Like, <laughs> sometimes I just can't help it. I fall into it. Mm -hmm. The Scottish accent in particular is very dangerous in that. <laughs> because once you get started practicing Scottish, it's hard to fall out of it. And I've heard oh. that from uh, more than one person, hmm. not just me. Well, I don't know if there's any Scottish accent in the segment you'd like to read for us, but we'd no, love to. Uh, no Scottish, okay. No, no Scottish, but uh, so here, here's a small chunk of, this is the Beatles after they've arrived in America. They're down in um, Miami, and uh, they're in their hotel in, uh, is it Deauville? 
Yeah, the Deauville Hotel. I also had That's to a... get uh, French pronunciations correct in this book. And yeah, Jude will uh, tell you that it was hard to keep me uh, in line sometimes. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, anyway, uh, this is what you get from being a reader when you're young. You get to know what the all the words mean, but pronunci- uh, pronouncing them is sometimes a bit of a sticky wicket. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> anyway. Somerville had ordered the boys a lavish Floridian breakfast. Fresh fruit, local pastries, steak, eggs, toast with condiments, tea, fresh-squeezed Florida orange juice, and coffee. Hey, uh, listen, John, Paul reminded him across the room surface cart. Brian's anxious for us to finish that song for the film, you know. Can't buy me? Yeah, yeah. John cut across Paul, smirking. It amused John that Paul always pronounced the L in film so distinctly. In fact, he almost smiled. Happy will have us demented with his hints and suggestions, won't he? John reached for the crabapple jelly, slathering it on his toast. Well, not if we complete the tune, right? Paul persisted. I mean, you know, we've got most of it in hand. I'll have me tea first, John lifted his cup. All right, Cynthia stood, freeing John to work. I'll take myself off to the hotel boutiques, then. See you after your photo shoot. Hey, I'd love a packet of smokes, if you remember, Ringo asked politely. And I'll take a blonde, cute, schoolgirlish, but not naive, top. George threw out a charming grin. Cynthia smiled and shook her head. And what's the allowance for something like that, George? she asked. Um... Priceless? He chuckled. Paul tossed a pillow at him. The others applauded. So, just a, a little. Fantastic. Bit. I mean, <laughs> I, I, you didn't even have to say who it was. You just knew. Oh, I, that was a the Paul, or that was Ringo, or it was. It just, yeah. Uh, and that so came from well practice. Yeah. And for the people who are saying, "No, how does she know?" That's what they said. That little exchange is from Cynthia's first book, Twist of Lemon. The, really? the words. Yeah, she's headed down to the gift shop where she gets stuck and almost right. cannot get back up to the room <laughs> because they wouldn't believe that she was John Lennon's wife because everyone right. was John Lennon's wife. Luckily, the fans leapt to her defense and said, we know what she looks like, and that is Cynthia Lennon, or she wouldn't have been able to get back up into the elevator. So <laughs> yeah, that's really an exchange with the Beatles. And Scott, isn't he magnificent? It's it's <laughs> fabulous. And that, you know, this actually leads so well into the next question, because uh, how I, I'm a big fan of audiobooks, I because I take lots of walks. And, uh, you know, you just I like to read too. But sometimes you just don't have the time uh so i've always wondered though because i've heard great speakers and voice uh actors and as well as some really bad ones and 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 some kind of amateurish these are supposedly you know dream dream whatever the company is that makes all these books and you'll hear someone coughing or it's just kind of embarrassing uh but i so i've always wondered what is the process for recording an audiobook especially uh, you can you again blame Jude for this because the book is 33 hours long. Yeah, uh, when you read it all with the notes and and the preludes. So, uh, what's the process for recording an audiobook like this? I love the process. Actually, I really do. Um, when I uh, the the first thing is to get a copy of the book, 
and to get a Kindle or um, I guess Apple version of the electronic book. That's important because it's much easier to read it from an electronic when I'm actually narrating than it is from a page. Mm. Pages make sounds. You're flipping the pages and noise. You're flipping yeah. the pages and I mark everything up. I use a, a program called I Annotate as one of the tools where I can highlight things, put in um, annotations and notes, uh, primarily as regards um, like who's talking if I'm not sure, emphases if it's not obvious from the context of the sentence, and um, pronunciations in particular. So one of the very first things I do once I have that copy is I will, um, even before, as I'm reading the book, I will go through and I'll make a list of everyone who has a line of dialogue. I do that using, with, with a PDF copy, and I can convert just about any electronic copy into PDF. I just do a search for um, quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, and names and normally that way i can pick all the different names out even the people like um you know you know yes sir you know said the you know the the doorman or something yeah like yeah that. that's a sentence it has to sound slightly different from the narrator's voice so there's I'll a make... lot of research for on your side before you even yes it, it's not just somebody reading the book out loud i mean there's there's Pronunciations a lot of are yeah. a real key especially proper names and sometimes it's a little hard to track down what people are supposed to sound like or their names, how they're pronounced, for instance. Mm. So with uh, Jay Bergen's book, um, the way the the judge's name is pronounced is Judge Grisey. Um, and it took me forever going through his publisher to Jay to try to figure out how it was supposed to be pronounced. The judge was prominent enough that when he died, his um, death was recorded in The New York Times. And oh. they actually had a pronunciation key for how to say it. So I decided to use that. And evidently, that's not how Jay and uh, the rest of the folks that um, dealt with the judge pronounced his name. So I had to go. Oh, awkward. <laughs> yes, awkward. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one of the things I do. I make notes of that. And then I'll read the book, gleefully ask questions to things. If something, one of the important things about narrating an audiobook is being engaged in it. Yeah. I can tell you that if you're listening to an audiobook, you can pick up real quick who sounds great but could care less about mm. what they're reading. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing more than a turnoff of somebody who just doesn't sound passionate or interested. They have a pleasant voice, and that's it. We're done. Um, and you'll notice that you keep like losing track of where it is. That's one way to tell that either the book's not well written or the narrator is doesn't realize where the emphases are supposed to be and if they're not interested in what they're reading why are they reading it yeah because i could tell you every book has something you can pull out of it that's how it got published in the first place if it had nothing to say for it it wouldn't be published mm -hmm. well so that's really fascinating just that, that especially in for this particular book did you what's the maximum amount of time you can sort of speak uh, before getting tired or losing your concentration um, segments uh, well I, I was i had colds at the beginning of this that oh. doesn't help no. because uh, <laughs> once your it affects your throat you can't record anymore because you'll have to redo it all anyway oh. because your voice has to sound pretty consistent from chapter to chapter so um probably about um six hours is the most mm. 
that's a long amount of time. And when you boil down all of the outtakes and things like that, you, you'll be surprised how short six hours actually boils down yeah. to. So it's and a 33-hour book, but um, there is um, more than double that that was recorded. Mm-hmm. We did it during the winter, and that yeah. was a problem, too. Tell him that story, Scott. Why, why well, that was- I, uh, I'm in a, a sound booth, and this isn't soundproof. It's just well dampened so that um, there aren't weird echoes all over the place. Even the picture I don't normally have up because it's got a reflective surface, and it'll sound a little strange or boxy if you put up too many reflective surfaces. During the winter, um, I'm downstairs, and we have a furnace down here. And oh, yes, yeah. Yes, you can hear the furnace when it goes on. <laughs> I even tried it once, um, just editing around the sounds of it, and people like, did you have a fan going or something? Because it sounds oh, no. awful weird. And like, okay, won't do that again. So anyway, I had to record in the middle of the night because um, oh, my, my family... I live with my family. I have a, a son who lives here and my wife lives here. And turning off the furnace in the middle of the winter isn't very kind for them. My my son actually has an office upstairs where he works from. And uh, he wouldn't be able to do that during regular office hours. So I worked on this mostly at night. Plus, it's quieter at night anyway. Fortunately mm-hmm. for me, I'm not near an airport. And I don't have a really busy highway, just a small yeah. street. With the occasional uh, <laughs> on a motorcycle uh, <laughs> making noise and sometimes uh, vans and moving stuff like that. So it was all hours and all colors. Wow. Well, so- Jude, you, you, as we mentioned, Scott mentioned earlier, you also do some speaking and you recorded uh, quite a bit for this book as well. So yeah. uh, tell us about your involvement. And then how would you describe this is the, the immediate thing that I thought of when I was listening how would you describe the experience of hearing your work versus the writing and reading of it? Um, well, first of all, I would not have done the notes had Scott not really highly suggested it because I do have a Southern accent. And I know that if you don't have a good standard Midwest voice, it can become irritating. And and I listen, I mainly listen to Irish writers. I really into Irish history. Hmm. And so almost every book that I listen to is an Irish accent. And I know that if someone didn't get that exactly right, or if they weren't right on the money, it would be irritating. So I was worried about it. But he said, no, no, I really want you to do this. And that's how you talk. It's authentic. Yeah. Yes. You don't. It's not like you're applying an accent. Uh, but right. you know, I just didn't want to irritate anyone. But I enjoyed recording it. I enjoyed sharing the research and all of the intricacies, um, because the story is never told the same. But if you take five people, they will tell you the story completely differently. I mean, even in the recording studio, if you take five musicologists and you ask them what instruments were played, they will disagree every time. Yep. Every time. Oh, it was the Tennessean. No, it was the Gretsch. No, it was, yeah, it, 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 they, they will not agree. And so that was interesting to be able to share the research and how we ended up using the details that we used. Um, what's the second part of your question? But what's it like to hear your work instead of writing okay. it or, or reading it? What do you so think I know is the, that experience yeah, I know like? the story backwards and forwards. And yeah. I, I will edit a chapter probably eh, 15 or 20 times. 
Then my husband edits it. Then I send it to the team of five editors and they edit it. So I've heard this story a bazillion times. <laughs> and when Scott would read it, it would make me cry. Hmm. Or I would fall off my chair laughing. <laughs> he changed everything. You know, it's not, no longer is it me trying to tell the story. It is the story. It You are in the room. You are with the Beatles and you're watching what's going on. And Tony Barrow is in the room and then Brian comes in and it's, it's another level. Hmm. Well, it, it, I can only imagine just to hear it all come to life in that way. And because you, you know, you sell books and you know, people buy the books and they're reading them by, by themselves. And, you know, when I'm reading it, I hear it in my head, but I can't tell you, or I don't tell you, Oh, I really, you know, I, I heard it this way, or I thought of something this way. It's not the same as actually having it voiced that way. And then knowing that it's going out to everybody and it's, they're hearing it for the first time too. Uh, yeah. said, spoken. <laughs> I am not a uh, happy, zippy, bursting with love kind of person. I am very serious little student who always thinks that the worst could happen. Mm. You know, I'm like, oh, this probably won't work. Oh, this probably won't work. It's a perfect person to tell John's story. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds am, like John. <laughs> I am not at all an optimist <laughs> in any way, shape or form. So it's hard for me to tell people how magnificent this is. It is the only project I can think of in probably in my life that I have ever been crazy over the moon about. Mm. I'm like, this is so good that a Beatles fan would cheat themselves out of not hearing it because it's the dream. You're there. Yeah. You're in EMI. You are with them backstage before they go on stage at the London Palladium when Ringo all of his life has heard from his mother's friend, his mother's best friend, play the Palladium and die. See you there. <laughs> See you on Sunday night at the London Palladium. See your name in lights, Richie. He's so nervous. He throws up in a bucket. You, you know, you are with them through the Royal Command performance and through that time in Paris, when they find out that I want to hold your hand has gone to number one, you're there. And that is that is what we all dream of. That is, you know, we are reliving it. And it's just so magnificent. This from a person who doesn't ever think anything is good enough. <laughs> well, so speaking of the reception, so what's the response been like so far from both of you? You obviously talked to people at the fest and you've talked to people elsewhere. So what's been the response so far? Scott? Uh, I think everybody really has liked it. I was always so nervous about, oh, you're just being nice to me. But um, I I really have had some very encouraging words of like, uh, how did you do that? The man of a thousand voices. Like, I'm not trying to be, uh, you know, the Lon Chaney of impressionists um, uh, as far as that goes. But um, thank you. Um, I worked hard at it. I uh, just listened to a lot. I, I will say that um, the Beatles Christmas uh, disc, which is in the book, the very first Flexi. Yep. I did in just about one take with all the voices overlapping because I've played it so many times in the last 40 years 
Oh, uh, wow. Somebody in your local radio station, and New York has plenty of great radio stations, will play it every single Christmas. You tape it off of there, and then you play it, you know, maybe 10, 20 times a season because, you know, you're a Beatle fan, and this is, this is what you do. And so I'd had it already almost memorized. And I thought, how much fun is it just trying to do all the voices overlapping? And so when I did do retakes, I decided to overlap the voices a little bit and do multi-track recording. So in some cases, uh, in some of the lines, you'll hear like somebody interrupts somebody. Like, well, how did he do that? Yes. I've had very good um, uh, reaction. It's been received well so far. Yeah, I think people are very happy with it. I um when you get a chance to perform it, we're getting ready to do a Zoom presentation for a library in New Jersey, the Roxbury Ooh. Library, and they're going to connect it to multiple other libraries in New Jersey. And Scott's going to be in person in Roxbury, but y'all you know, be on the screen. But when they get to see it, and my husband puts a video with it, it's, it's the Beatles landing at JFK, and you can watch the girls. Oh, and watch God. It. sounds He's so like, fun. Yeah. It is so much fun. It just comes to life. And I will say one part of the process that Scott didn't get to tell you about is that after he had recorded everything, then he would send it to us a chapter a night and we would sit down and listen and make notes mm. and send it back. And he would go back in and rework. And we generally had things, you know, like a one or two or three things on every chapter he never was anything but gracious and energetic <laughs> and willing to redo it. It was, this was a probably, Scott, did we work all total about nine months? On I was going to ask how long the whole yeah, from start to finish. Nine months from just thinking it out and looking at the different possibilities of who to have distributed. Most yeah. people just go straight to Audible. Um, and Audible and Amazon, as you know, are the same thing. Mm -hmm. They also distribute, although it's not doesn't get much publicity, to um, uh, Apple. Apple oh. iTunes uh, picks up audiobooks for just about everything that Audible does. Um, but this case, we wanted to have a wider uh, range of uh, people able to get it. So we went through Findaway Voices. In addition to Audible, that means that the audiobooks available on Spotify, Barnes & Nobles, Oboe? Chirp, Chirp I like. They're an independent place that's rather good. Uh, Libro.fm distributes it, and you choose an independent bookstore. And oh, an independent wow. bookstore of your choice, uh, in my case, it was uh, Thunder Road Books down in um, New Jersey. Um, who else? Uh, I, I think, uh, was it Walmart? Mm. Also yes. picks it up through Oboe. Um, Hobo. Yeah. And um, Apple Books, you name it. I mean, well, they, yeah. they distribute yeah, 40 oh. different um, audiobook wow. distributors. Yeah. So wherever you can find it. And some libraries will even pick it up as well on Hoopla. <laughs> you know, I, I did. Uh, somebody's asked, um, uh, how did you do the book? Did you do the chapters in order? And yeah, unlike a movie, I can do them in order. But um, there were four or five chapters I didn't do along with the rest. And those are the ones that Jude kept w probably wondering, like, where, where's chapter you know, 20 <laughs> or so? Did he and forget those it? are the yeah. ones where the voices were the hardest ones. Mm. So um, I had to do um, uh, John Lennon's father, Fred, as well as um, uh, Fred's brother. And oh, wow. um, uh, I was having a hard time not only just trying to separate the voice, but to sound like John's father on top of that. 
and, and it does are there actually recordings of his voice or interviews yes or... oh there are fred lennon recorded a single um which came out that. in 1965 and was yanked how fast jude well and there are copies out there though oh there, yeah. well yeah. Uh, john I lennon like, had I it love... stopped being yeah. distributed he yeah. was furious that his father was just sponging off the fact that john was you know somebody you'd never met yeah make money off of him hmm. but to be Which but to be fair yeah. to be fair he really had met him several times at that point that fred released yes. that and not only that but they had gotten along famously and stayed at kenwood for several nights they <laughs> it was a very strange relationship and it was all mimi's fault because Fred yeah, really, yeah. Fred really wanted that little boy and would have taken him to New Zealand, would have raised him. But Julia showed up on the doorstep the night before and he did what he thought was the right thing and let John go home with his mother, not knowing he wasn't going to live with her. Had no idea that he'd be living at Mendips with Mimi. That was Pop Stanley. And he wrote to him regularly, but Mimi tore the letters up and wrote to him and said, don't contact that little boy again. He oh. needs, you're confusing him. He needs to be happy with George and me. Leave him alone or I'm going to tell him you this, 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 and this bad about you. And so he stopped. He loved John and he was a singer. That's what he did. He would sing on the transport ships, taking the soldiers from New York to the war front. And he would sing Begin the Begin in the mess room. So really, I feel like Fred is the most maligned character of all the characters in the Beatles story. He was really a good guy, but, you know, John would be fine with him, embracing him. Yes, my dad is back. We're fine. And then he'd think about it and he'd think he didn't contact me for all these years. Yeah, and never knew about the letters. Mm -hmm. And then he'd get mad and then he'd pitch him out. And so it went on like that for Fred's entire life. This this is what I mean about the myth busting, because I know from all the books I'd read, starting as a kid, I see some of them behind you, uh, Jude, the, uh, he's, he's a bum, you know, just, yeah. he, he let just abandon John and, and was never heard from again until he tried to come back and cash in. On yeah. His son. And he would not have even contacted John when he did. The first time that he contacted him was the last day of March when they are making, they're in La Scala making that video of the Beatles singing on stage for a hard day's night. Mm. And Brian says, you need to get in the car and come with me to my office. There's someone who wants to talk to you. Fred has arranged to meet John there that day and talk to him. They have a 20 minute conversation. It's a great conversation. How do I know that? Because John is an interview immediately following it. And you can listen to that interview. He's making jokes. He's laughing. He's in a great mood. And Cynthia says, it's in both of her books, he comes home that night and says, I met me dad today. He's just like me. He's he's a lunatic, just like <laughs> me. They got along great, just great. So huh. he really did like him. Um, but Bill Harry says that the only reason, and Bill knows, I mean, Bill was a part of this, very yeah. close to John at that time. The only reason that Fred got in touch with John is because his brother came to him and said, look, Reporters are following you. They know where you are. They're going to break the story. Before they do that, you need to go talk to John. Mm. And because it's, don't let him find out from a reporter that you're living here washing dishes in this hotel, the Anthropocene Bar. Don't do this until you see him first. Mm -hmm. Go to him and tell him. And so Fred did. 
he truly wanted nothing from John. John offered to give him money and he did. He sent him money monthly, but it wasn't something that Fred asked for. I'm sure he was thrilled. He, he wasn't well to do at all, but it's not what people make it out to be. Hmm. And that's the chapter that you put in the book and it's wonderful. Yes. And again, I just had problems with the voices. So the record helped a little bit. Actually, the uh, the song on the record is kind of gentle. It's not trying to be a rip-off rock and roll kind of song. Hmm. And um, his voice is very much like John's. Wow, so those Lennon jeans are pretty strong, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, you can certainly kids. hear it in Julian's voice. Yeah, you know, oh yeah. And Sean, too. But, yeah, um, definitely. Uh, with his father, yeah. Hmm. So anyway, that, that was one of the chapters that I kept working on until I thought I had it right. And then Jude was very called me crying and i'm like i, I no. guess i did okay <laughs> it was right and another one that's very difficult to do is tony barrow because tony's a scouser yeah. but once tony moves to london he very much tries to leave his liverpool accent behind he very much adopts the london articulation and that sharper t sound and the crisper sound he's trying to fit in with the people that he's dealing with in business sort of like what uh, ken womack says about george martin too how he right. sort of tweaked his accent as well to be a little more posh right yeah in london yeah. Hmm. so that was a hard one that was a really difficult one to do but i couldn't be i couldn't be happier i'm, I'm not happy for me and i'm happy for the people that get to hear it Yes. I don't know how you felt, but when I listen, I'm not here. I'm no. there. I, that's what I mean. I walking around, walking down Main Street and or you know Ward Parkway in Kansas City, and I'm just like in Liverpool. I mean, this is, or I'm in the car, or I'm listening have, to. Have it. you have you listened yeah. to any other um, Beatle audio books in particular? I don't think so, actually, because, because I, it's it's like a separate genre of yeah. audio books. The thing hmm. I like most about listening to them. Um, and I'm sorry if I'm going on, uh, but it's no, no. Um, uh, audiobooks I find are easier to listen to after I've read the book, especially if I'm driving. If I, I, I tried to start Game of Thrones while I was driving, Ooh. I almost went through that first red light that I hit just like, yeah. well, wait a minute. Who is this again? Who is yeah. that again? And that's um, a full way stop. OK. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then immediately I'm like, I'm not listening to this. So I'll, I'll play The Hobbit again or something like that. <laughs> With Beatle audiobooks, you already know the story. Right. For the most part, you're just waiting to hear what's different. So, and it's normally a different point of view or something. But mm -hmm. you more or less know what's going to happen. And you know the years in which it'll happen if you know that a little bit about the Beatles or a little bit more. So you don't have to always read the book first. And therefore, it's so much easier to jump right in. My uh, uh, goal is to get you to stay in. Yeah. And because Jude's book was so large, um, you know, uh, people were like, well, uh, geez, I'll, I'll try to find time to read that. I don't know. I don't get much time to read. And like, yeah, but you can listen. Yep. Exactly. And you can do that uh, without losing your place because, again, it's a story that's more familiar. Yeah, that's a great point. I had a distinction to think about in, in, in terms of a, like a fictional and book you I, don't I know. I did listen yeah. to other uh, Beatle audiobooks while I was okay. preparing for this. So that was another step in preparing it, not just to read the book, but to listen to alternate books on audiobook format, steal what was done well. Mm. and uh, ignore what wasn't or try not to do things that I thought of as mistakes and approach to the sure. material. 
Dave, have you gotten to the um, segments on the UK tour yet? No, not yet. Not yet. Okay. So we had so much fun with that because as Scott mentioned, we found a band in New Jersey, the same age as the Beatles when they were on that UK tour. And they're all good looking guys and they're all enthusiastic. And we got two of their original <laughs> songs. They are so, so Beatlesque. Oh. And we mm. use snippets like the last night in the Cavern Club. You get to experience that first from Ringo's point of view, then George, then Brian comes in, then uh, Bob Wooler comes in, then Paul, and finally John. And as they walk in that last evening, we play the music of the Black Ties for a segment, then their thoughts. Music, the Black Ties, then their thoughts. And I can't wait for you to hear it. They, oh. they are so good. And we recently ran into them at, at FabFest in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I said, you guys, people are loving your music and the audio book. And they went, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> You're in our audio book. We are? Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> Their manager, who is the dad of two of the boys, didn't tell. So shout out to the Black Ties because they really are great. Yep. Wow. And I, I caught up with them the next week down at the Jersey Shore. Huh. Um, and where I heard them live in a wonderful three-hour concert, and I talked to them afterwards about it too. So I it was thrilled that I got to meet them. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's so much, so much to recommend in this recording, and and it's just a pleasure. And I said, I uh, the other day I was listening in preparation for this, and 40 minutes went by. I didn't even, you know, I was like, oh wow, I, I'm home. Okay, that's the end of the walk, and I I, I want to keep going. So. Uh, so it's a credit to both of you with the, the writing and the presentation. So uh, we'll definitely uh, post a link and let you know how to uh, purchase this and, and get a copy. But before we uh, sign off, because we could go on forever. I know this is so fun. Uh, Jude, I'll have each of you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. Uh, and, uh, Jude, you're, I bet you said you already are, you mentioned you're working on the new book and looking at rubber soul stuff. So uh, yes. how's that going? What's, how is the current work? Uh, we are, the boys have just ended the 1965 North American tour. This is for Shades of Life part two. And Ken Womack very astutely suggested, he goes, are you going to give it a different title? Because it's going to be very confusing for people if you call it Shades of Life part two. True to know which one to get. He said, you need to have another title and put that underneath it. So it is going to be called Some Forever. And hmm. it is. Uh, it will take you from the day that the Beatles land in New York on the 13th of um, August, fr that Friday the 13th, when they come to, to New York City to play Shea Stadium as their very first concert of that 1965 tour. They're going to meet Elvis. That took me three months to take the notes on. And yeah. I did so much research on it that it was bewildering because not even the words that Elvis says to them when he threatens to go to bed, you know, if you guys are, aren't going to talk, <laughs> no one makes that quote the same everybody tweaks it a little bit i can't even get an agreement on that let alone and, the the funny that funny bit in the anthology when they they said oh ringo played football with elvis or whatever they're joking around the, or <laughs> john says john says we jam with elvis yeah we jam with elvis and i can tell you why they did real quickly yeah. George, George leaves right after they hand out the instruments because he goes out looking for marijuana. Yes. 
And Ringo goes to play snooker with the Memphis Mafia. And now <laughs> they're not in the room. So of course they didn't jam with Elvis, no. <laughs> you know, but John and Paul argue about what songs they jammed on. I mean, they do not agree on hmm. what songs they jammed on. John has a playlist, Paul has a playlist and never the twain shall meet. But um, <laughs> anyway, that took forever. They are now in studio getting ready to make rubber soul if I can ever quit taking notes. <laughs> and of course the MBE is going to be presented yep. during that time frame. And they're going to do that special on November 1st and 2nd, the music of Lennon and McCartney. So that's where I am. I've got to get them into 1966 and get them all the way to Candlestick Park. And I have 17 months to do it. Wow. Right. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It, it'll happen, but how it will happen, I do not know. Well, it'll be very exciting to get that. I mean, that's really the, uh, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it have been nice if we gotten a rubber soul box set, perhaps? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I've, I, it doesn't seem like it's heading that direction from all the news that we're hearing, but. Sounds like the red and blue. Album. Yeah, I know. I know. But nah, we'll see. But look forward to that. That's that's my favorite period from 66. Well, they actually that end of 65 to 67. I love a middle period Beatle fan. So uh, yeah. it'll be exciting to see what you have to say. Nice. And, yeah. And Scott, what are you up to these days? Well, um, I've been working on a uh, an audio drama, which is like an old fashioned radio show kind of thing uh, for people who don't listen to audio dramas. So audio drama, it's a podcast. It's an um called peculiar springs hmm. takes place at a fictional radio station called peculiar radio and um i uh, help write the um audio drama i'm one of the contributors to the writing staff and i minor uh, i voice a minor character that uh, shows up occasionally named marvin the mercurial <laughs> and um that's coming out in about a week or so Ooh. And my next audio book is going to be a history book. Uh, this one's nonfiction, although it sounds like a fictional title. It's called Bathsheba Spooner, A Revolutionary War Conspiracy by Andrew Noon. It's about a murder uh, conspiracy that took place during the Revolutionary War hmm. amongst uh, a woman and her husband, two British soldiers, and the uh, their loyalists. My Ooh. and it really happened and it was big news back in the day anyway that's uh the next audiobook i'm doing i also record civil war letters that have never been published hmm. and uh, i do that as part of a non-profit organization for a man named william griffin and it's called spared and shared they're spared from uh basically oblivion and shared yeah. with you know, they're in private collections they've never been put into uh uh, universities or archives of any kind that the public has access to hmm. so he transcribes them and does the research on them and then for select ones i record them and read the letters out loud as if i'm the person writing the letters hmm. they sound pretty good spared and shared and audio are the they're very touching i bet yeah these kids were young oh young. yeah like oh, one yeah. one fourteen, the last letter that you sent us was yes. fourteen. He was a drummer boy, fourteen. Yeah. Oh my gosh. He evidently, doesn't have parents who I guess uh, he was. He wasn't going to school. Let's just put it that way. Right. Um. Although it's wartime, and outside of that, uh, for Jude, we're hoping to do if we can uh, figure out a way to make it work a CD version of "She Loves You," 
mm-hmm. for people who really don't like digital stuff. Yeah. just want to, you know what? I don't want to sign up for anything. I don't want to register for a player. Uh, even though it's free, that's fine. But I don't like phones. And I just play it on a <laughs> CD deck of some kind. So we're hoping Although, to uh, find a, yes? We had one one yes. person at the fest this past weekend who had put it on CD. She said it is 29 CD. <laughs> I'm like, okay, see, I don't see that. No. I was flattered. But anyway, we are, um, and we're also excited to, to jump into the next book, into volume four. Yes, so. excellent. So we will excellent. be doing the next one. Don't want to wait too long before it comes out, because just as with this one that we've already done, She Loves You, 60th anniversary. Yep, exactly. And um, the next book covers basically the 60th anniversary, you know, 1964. All of next year, it will be the anniversary of A Hard Day's Night. Yes. Oh, I, a lot of voices. Uh, Norman Shake. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's going to be some. Can you do a good Victor Spinetti for us? Yeah. Um, I think I can. Jeez, did I try practicing? We're on three. What? what? We're on three. Oh, <laughs> oh yes. Uh, very good. <laughs> dig that sweater. I don't know. She knitted him. He was one of the best guests I saw at Beetlefest over the years. Gosh, he's so funny and what a nice guy. Yes. So I, I got a signed copy of his book. I was very pleased. Oh, very cool. Very cool. On the top. So I right, will Daddy, do my best to do justice. We're holding your feet to the fire. New York, 9 February. You're going to be there. Oh, that is, that's right. It's the big, yeah. That I remember they were getting the Plaza Hotel or something. They were the whole the T- TWA Hotel. TWA Hotel. I, I said to Mark, can we go out on the tarmac and I'll scream? He's like, no. Oh, <laughs> TSA said, won't let you out there. I know. He's like, I, I said, can we go up to the roof and scream? No. no. <laughs> so, <laughs> I tried, but anyway. That's, uh, yes, I, I hope I, I'm going to start looking and see if I can make that work because it would be so much fun to, to do it and then have a podcast live from the yep. fest, which would be yes. great to do. So that would we'll, be wonderful. Uh, I'll be, I'll work on, it. I'll see what I can do. All right. Thank and in you. the meantime, uh, what, give us your websites uh, so we can follow your work. So Jude. John Lennon series.com, John Lennon series.com. And all the books are there. We are sold out of the first three, but they are on every single ebook format. And of course, volume three is on the audio book. So yes, you have that. And then I do have some copies of volume four, which is 1964 and volume five, which is the first eight months of 1965 and working on that part two. Great. And Scott. I've I've got a website as well. It's mckinleyco.com. That's uh, McKinley, M-C-K-I-N-L-E-Y-C-O.com. And um, you can find links to all of my work in there and uh, Hopefully, uh, I'll be starting a podcast at some point of my own on reading. Oh, very good. As a former bookstore manager, I've got a lot of books. And a lot of experience. Yeah. I'd like to share some of that. Maybe even read some aloud. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Terrific. Terrific. Well, before we go, you said you uh, had some questions. Uh, It's in regards to a couple of your uh, previous episodes. You guys had done a... um, 1973 reunion album episode which i love the idea and you you basically said if they if they got together for whatever reason in 1973 
the album probably would be called Band on the Run. And I thought that makes sense. I like mm -hmm. that. But um, you you mentioned about the four Beatles, of course, being produced by um, George Martin. But you didn't include any uh, George Martin stuff. So I thought I would nominate an additional track to the 12 that you both picked as the first bonus track when the CD version came out, which would be um, George Martin's, um, I think it was called Theme One, which came out on, uh, let's see, what was it? Uh, Beatles, To Bond, and Back, hmm. uh, which I think was uh, George Martin's album that came out in 1974. Uh -huh. So he would have been working on that in 73. And I could see that it being a nice instrumental track on there that um, would have balanced it out just a little bit of his own original stuff. But yeah, to bring something of him into the mix, because uh, he has so much on his own as well. Well, he'd I also like done some additional work on the James Bond theme. Exactly, of when course. When Live and Let Die came uh, out. Of course. I just thought I'd mention that. Thank you. That's a great idea. I'm going to go listen to that track, too. <laughs> we're not just friends. We're also fans. We, I appreciate yeah. that. That's terrific. Your podcast. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> the album's on Spotify. Just, uh -huh. just uh, Okay, good, good, good. And then uh, just one other note, which was on uh, the Ruddles episode you'd done. Oh, yes. Um, which was a, a very, that was a contentious one. I think we talked about it, but we'd been getting emails for years from people <laughs> saying, you've got to do a Ruddles. And Chris was the one who was kind of uh, reticent to do it, but we did it. Well, you absolutely needed a Ruddles. Yes. You know, um, I think most Beatles fans find that when they run out of all of the stuff that's been officially released to listen to, you go on to similar sounding things. Yep. Yep. And groups. And the Ruddles is certainly right there because the music stands out so well on its own. Sure does. Without having to be a Beatle parody. Archaeology was in my, jeez, uh, I must have played that once a day for I don't know how many months. Even so years catchy. after it had come out. It is. Yeah. It is. And back in six, uh, yeah, back in 64 mm -hmm. is a really catchy track. And I know Neil Innes liked that because in both of the fests that I saw him in, he, particularly played it more than once oh <laughs> i know he played it uh, electric and he also did it acoustically i don't know if you knew this but it was the lowest rated show that entire season on television seriously i remember With all when those it stars came out, i i know i read <sighs> about this before it came out and i'd been looking forward to it the TV guide had covered it in some sort of an article. I'm like, wow, something on the Beatles and yeah. Monty Python. It's all together. Oh, yeah. And um, you hear about the lineup of all the cameos, of the Saturday Night Live people and you know, Mick Jagger and uh, yeah, Paul, Paul Simon, Simon. And like, oh, wow. And uh, Yellow Submarine Sandwich. And, <laughs> and I watched it. I enjoyed it. The music was phenomenal. Yep. And yet it tanked because nobody knew what it was. Hmm. the normal americans see it's all about marketing it is wow i well they did marketing it just didn't work out for whatever yeah. reason yeah yeah and which was a pity do you think it was so. too soon for a satire or a spoof or some people thought it was yeah um and i know that um all of the beatles got to uh, at least watch it yeah i, yeah, I don't we... know um what paul thought of it but i know that john thought he it was thought hilarious and he also knew that they were going to get their butt sued for um, Get Up and Go in particular. Yeah. And that was something else that you had in the episode. They did get sued. The Ruddles did get sued for being that, and they lost. 
Oh, ooh. So now the uh, songs Cheese and Onions are officially attributed to Lennon, McCartney, Innes, and uh, whoever wrote it with uh, Neil. Oh, my. Wow. <laughs> so they did lose that lawsuit. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I, there's, I don't know. Has anybody written a book on the Ruddles or that whole? Like, there to, is to get some um, of the stuff one you're with, about. I, it's mostly a collection of articles mm. on a very early 90s website that I remember going to back in the day. And that, it's good. It's good. Okay. Because that may seem maybe an untapped area while you can still get Lauren Michaels and get a few of the people, Paul Simon, Mick Jagger, kind of get them nice. on record. Yeah. Yeah. So, huh. Well, I appreciate uh, you listening and, and checking that out. We, uh, Chris got a little flack uh, because he, well, <laughs> Chris tends to be a little more, uh, uh, I don't want to say, more more john like about some things i'm more paul a little more pollyanna sometimes about oh i like this you know it's pretty good and he's like nah it's lousy i don't like it so, <laughs> i don't like the ruddles but he he, he liked them later on so that's good maybe should too <laughs> yeah so absolutely like monty python and you'll take any uh connection you can and, and george is in it yeah yeah i mean exactly i know <laughs> all nicely trimmed as eric manchester there yeah. oh yeah he's got mm-hmm yeah <laughs> Tell one Chris one of these days I'm going to get to meet him. I think I'll yes. maybe the same person because I've never seen you in the room together. Uh, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make it happen. I'll try to get him out to New York too. That would be Tell great. Tell him we said hi. <laughs> we'll do. We'll do. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Jude Sutherland Kessler and Scott McKinley for joining us on I've Got a Beatles podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure and joy. Please go download, listen to their audio book of She Loves You, the third volume in the John Lennon series. I know you'll enjoy it. And uh, write in, send a, an email to them and let them know what you think because it's a, a fantastic listen. So keep up the great work and uh, we look forward to speaking to you when the next book comes out. Thank you so much. We always love being on your podcast, David. It means the world. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, David, very much. Thank you. I appreciate it.